Oh, we're live. Yeah, we're live. And um, hey, guys, this is Jerry Sue, and I'm here with David Aguzzi, the owner, president of Grappling Industries. Um, I first heard of Grappling Industries a year or two ago, thanks to my friends at um, my academy sister school, Open Mat Toronto, Canada. A lot of the uh, the Open Mat competitors and um, jujitsu practitioners there raved about grappling industries after they competed at one of their events. They talked about um, on social media the great value that grappling industries provide, the multiple matches in their round robin format, the great surfs and overall experience they had at the events. Um, at the time, I thought of grappling industries as just this Canadian phenomenon of Canadian promotion, kind of like Degrassi Junior High and Justin Bieber. <laughs> but like Degrassi and Justin Bieber, they're going global in 2015. They expanded all the way to Australia in 2016. They're coming stateside with events in New York City, Boca Raton, Florida, and Chicago, Illinois. Um, their first big splash in the United States is on March 12th in New York City at Baruch College, um, is. which is one of the famed venues for East Coast grappling, where they hold many IBJJF events and other great grappling events over the years. Um, and that will be highlighted by a super fight between the Henzo Gracie Academies, Eddie the Wolverine Cummings, and Mancha Kiera from Marcelo Garcia Academy. It's great rivalry between the two schools, and it'll continue at Grappling Industries as well. And um, again, 2015 was a big year for him, 2016 even bigger with events in the United States, Australia, and Canada as well. Um, in addition to that, what really makes them great is that they're paying money to their winners. Not just the advanced guys, not just the brown and black belts, but also even to the white belts. So they're really, I was telling Dave this before we went live, that they're really zagging wherever the rest of the industry is zigging. And I, for the positive, and you know, we're honored to have you, David. Um, just want to kick off with the first question to you. Um, I love stories like the one I follow about grappling industries. How do you conceive the idea? How did I start the idea? I think, to be completely honest, when I was in university, me and a, a best friend of mine, we were sitting around um, talking about the jiu-jitsu scene that existed at that moment in the Montreal community, especially because we're from Montreal. Mm -hmm. So in Montreal at the time, there was only the World Pro Jiu-Jitsu Trials that would happen once a year. It was a gi tournament. Um, they would offer the trips, of course, to Abu Dhabi for um, the big great tournament that they have once a year there. But besides for that one gi tournament, there was maybe one or two small independent events, no cash prizes, uh, one and done type of events, but very small. They were random. You never knew if they were going to happen again. So really, besides the World Pro, there was nothing in Montreal. So our goal was, and how it was conceived, I suppose, was just a side project in university where we wanted to present more opportunity to competitors in our region of Montreal to give them an opportunity to compete besides this once a year. Also give them a chance to compete in no-gi because the, the World Pro Jiu-Jitsu tournament is only a gi tournament. So competitors didn't have a chance to test their no-gi skills. Um, and then from there we started with uh, just the idea of putting on a couple of events a year, uh, three or four in Montreal. And that's at least how it started at the beginning. And what year was this when you guys started running, conceived the idea and started actually running the tournaments? It was uh, the idea that when we started playing around with the idea was in early 2011. Um, 
in the first couple of months, that's when we started throwing around the ideas. We started contacting certain people that might have more knowledge than us, see what they would think of uh, what we would try to accomplish. And did you have an experience in running events and marketing events like this? Oh man, to be completely honest, uh, in university I was actually studying history, so I had no business experience, no marketing experience. Um, and so I didn't have any experience at actually how to run an event when that when I started. It's just something that I thought that it could be learned, although I didn't realize how much learning there would be there would have to be done. But at the same time, um, I was willing to just try to just try to learn the way the ropes, you know. But I had no experience once I started actually putting on events. Like like a lot of people, once they try to become an entrepreneur at something, they don't really have that much experience. They just have maybe a solution to a problem they thought in their mind, and then they were going to try to take it from there, I suppose. And when you what you, um, you ran your first tournament. Did you borrow wrestling mats from a high school gym? How do you get the venue? And how was the insurance? And did you have medical staff? And what were some of the logistics and obstacles that you had to overcome in starting your first tournament? So at the beginning, our first ever event, we ran it inside of a very large gym that had a lot of very space, uh, a lot of free space. Um, they had a huge stack of tatamis that we were able to use. This was before we were grappling industries. This was when we were trying to play with the idea of trying to run a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournament. From there, once we had that first example tournament where it was just a sample, so something that we, we were trying to see, like, how does this work? Then that's when it got interesting. That's once we started actually reaching out to different venues in Montreal. Um, then we would talk to the venues. They would require certain insurance. We'd have to go look at different insurance brokers, find the, find the appropriate general liability insurance or public liability insurance they would need. And then we would get the venue. Then they would have their insurance. One huge thing to us, though, was compared to other tournaments, every other tournament would rent their mats or they would borrow from another promoter. They would borrow the laptops and the screens and or the flipboards if that's what they used and the barricades. I always had the idea that if we were going to put on more and more tournaments, we, that we have to own our own production. So for the first actual grappling industries tournament, what we did was we actually bought our mats. We bought our we bought our scoreboards. We bought we bought that basic production to be able to at least run an event whenever we thought would be good in the schedule without having to rely on someone to rent from. Also, we thought of it as a logistics standpoint that if we were going to make money on events, that we would be able to pay back our production, the cost, the expenses of having to buy all this stuff, which over time would, of course, probably be less than if every time we had to rent it from someone like a Zebra Mats or a Dolomar for example, which then higher rental prices start to chip into our event expenses where over over an amount of time, we wouldn't have actual mat fees or uh, scoreboard fees for having to rent this stuff because we don't it. So it would actually lower the event budgets over a while and uh, that's allowed us to be very successful over a long period of time now actually. And that sounds like a great idea, especially from a long-term financing. Um, but. Were, did, were you a little bit nervous pulling the trigger out, oh my God, I'm buying all these mats, all these laptops, all this software, and other barricades and everything else that you have to buy for an event? Did it make you a little nervous? How do you come up with the seed money? Ah, so at first, Canada, Canada was a very nervous experience because I was coming from no business experience. 
I, I didn't have very deep pockets, um, but I knew people with deep pockets and they were able to lend me the money and I would go get the mats and I would get the initial stuff. So at the beginning, it was the first time I ever took a loan from someone, the first time I ever went into debt actually, because through university I was never in debt um, or anything like that. So this was the first time I'm in debt. It was, it was very scary, of course. <laughs> it was very stressful. But once I started paying that person back, I started realizing that I could do this. Um, I think what's gotten scarier is that as, as we've expanded to more countries and more cities, those numbers of, uh, the number of what you're in debt in <laughs> is actually gets higher every time you make a bigger expansion. So although in Canada we started, we bought four rings and then we bought a couple more and then we bought a couple more, we started slowly. When we went to Australia, we didn't go slow. We just bought the eight rings with the warm-up mat and the entire production and everything at once. We just bought it at once. And then now with the most uh, biggest expansion we've done now with the United States, we've just come into the United States. We bought the 12 rings. We bought the warm-up mat. We bought the 12, uh, 12 screens, 12 laptops. Last week, has actually, uh, medals have been shipped in from China. Uh, as of today, actually, they arrived in New York. So... Um, we just bought everything at once. So right now actually is the most stressed I've ever been from a financial standpoint because I'm, I've risked everything in trying to keep expanding um, this project, I suppose. But yeah, of course it's going to be, of course it's going to be stressful. I mean, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars in an idea, in a theory of yours that of course the jujitsu community might not take advantage of. And then <laughs> you could leave me in a weird situation later, but I think um, another thing as far as that, as far as the financial risks and how much it stresses a person, Canada and Australia are going very well. Mm -hmm. And those are very successful regions for us. So even if we come into the United States and it's not as profitable or successful off the bat as we, we hoped for, we've established a cash flow backing us to make sure that if there are any losses by any chance, and there has never been a loss on any of the 50 grappling industries tournaments to date, okay? But if there was a loss, then we'd have a cash flow to support us so we wouldn't just go bankrupt. I think that's something, a difference between us and many other tournaments is that a lot of tournaments today don't own their own productions. And not only that, they don't establish any cash flow. They just rush into the United States of all the places and they just throw money at it. A lot of people start in California where the market's very saturated. They don't have a cash flow and if they don't get the numbers they hope for, they have no way out of this problem which is something we've seen in Metamorphosis as well a lot lately. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and speaking of Southern California, everybody looks at it as a very – as the hub of grappling. And just this weekend, I live in Los Angeles. We had three tournaments on the same weekend, Gracie Nationals at the L.A. Convention Center, NABJJF at Cerritos College, and then right ten in this huge triangle, 10 minutes from Cerritos was the um, Pro Abu Dhabi. Uh, yeah, UAE. Long Beach. Pro, and you had three tournaments. Um, I believe with kids and adults, uh, NABJJF had over a thousand competitors. The um, the UAE Pro had, I think, roughly two hundred fifty competitors, and then Gracie Nationals, I think, had five hundred to a thousand. And that's in one market. You had three tournaments running, and yeah, you know, those are those are respectable wow. numbers. I mean, five hundred competitors is a very respectable respectable number. Um, it's just funny how, although how saturated that market is, that's where so many people want to start up their events. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think it could be the access to the home Loba Hall. You have Cobrina, you have Galvao, the Mendez brothers, um, Checkmat HQ, Gracie Baja HQ. But yeah, there's a tournament maybe like at least two a month. And then there's some large academies that have weekly Sunday tournaments. It's, it's a pretty saturated market over here. And it's where all the new tournaments want to go too. Like if you look at Five Grappling, one of their first tournaments, California, Jiu-Jitsu World League, California, uh, Jiu-Jitsu Global Federation with Hicksing, California, the Vulcan, the Vulcan tournament he had, um, Rev Gear, California. Everyone wants to start in California, but what about all the other states? You know, well, everyone was focused on California. And I had this conversation with uh, Day and Henson one time at Five Grappling. I told him, well, I'm not going to go to California. Everyone's going to California. I'm going to go to Australia. <laughs> and he's like, why would you go to Australia? I'm like, none of you guys are in Australia. <laughs> and Australia turned out to be not only a massive jujitsu market and a profitable one, but they, they, they're hungry for it. We're, we're adding even more shows this year than we had last year in Australia. So although there's like – Although there's like this huge hub in California, I think there's a lot of other places that you can really develop your jiu-jitsu brand. I mean, look at Texas. Texas is an emerging market now in jiu-jitsu. I mean, that if the world was ever to travel, Texas should be their next place. They should hold a tournament. And that kind of segues to where I want to discuss next, the growth of grappling industries and how you evaluate opportunities. How did you look at Australia and say, hey, this is an underserved market. There's an opportunity here. Australia, that was a winged idea. <laughs> I had a friend. It's a crazy idea. It is another idea. on the other side of the world. Right now it's your evening. It's their morning. It, but you mean, <laughs> how did you evaluate that and say, hey, let's do this? Well, several things happened at once. Um, first of all, I'm a night owl, so I'm up all night. Um, I have a really good friend. She's a... Uh, She's friends with Kit Dale, so she introduced me to Kit Dale as well. And all at the same time, I had a friend who from Open Mat. His name is Scott Bacon. He had won a tournament of mine in uh, Toronto. He had he had gone to uh, Australia for a little while, and then he started sending me competitors lists in the middle of the night, being like, "Look at this stuff. There's so many names on this competitors list." And then he'd send me pictures of the tournaments, and the tournaments looked like in-house events and. I mean, they'd get three, four hundred competitors, but they'd have this little cheap metal that you could buy for 50, 75 cents from China, um, stuff like that. It was just like it wasn't well produced. And the competitors list numbers were just so overwhelming that I couldn't understand why so many competitors were going to so, such low class tournaments. And I just eventually just an idea was planted in my head like Inception. And I, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to try this, you know, I'm going to put like I think it was like 40 grand was my investment in Australia off the bat. And <laughs> I think like, it, like you said, it was like a very scary moment, but like, I really believed in it. We did a lot of great work. We got a lot of great sponsors off the bat there. I, I hooked up with uh, a guy there, Ben Hodgkinson, who, who's one of Kitdale's brown belts. And we had, we had a great vibe. We planted, we planted the whole strategy. We planned the whole strategy for what we were going to do. And then, and then I came there for every single set of events we did there, and we just – it was magical. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it actually worked. I mean, I was on the plane going to Australia the first time, like really, really nervous. Like what have I gotten myself into? Why would I invest so much money in a country I've never been that's on the other side of the world? I can't just come home if I'm a failure the next day. I've got to wait out the whole trip and do all the shows I planned here. And uh, I'm just – 
to be honest, like I'm just really grateful it actually turned out and that everything actually worked out as planned because I know in life, uh, not every time you plan something like that, it's actually going to go as planned. So I, I just got really fortunate that like great people thought that they should send me their competitors list and great people thought that, hey, you know, I have friends that you should work with here. And just the Australian people like in general have been very welcoming in grappling industries there. They have their own association there. Uh, Australian Federation of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, who's now actually linked up with the IBJJF. So if you win the AFBJJ big tournaments they have in Australia, you get points towards the IBJJF because they don't have very many IBJJFs in Australia. But uh, that doesn't really matter. It's not going to save them because grappling industries is a huge opposition to them now in uh, Australia. And I think a lot of people just felt shifted by the way there was only one federation doing tournaments in Australia. And now that those grappling industries, now you have opposition. So you're seeing one tournament really call out the other, trying to better the other tournament. And in a way, we're only going to make the scene better because their, their tournaments are going to have to be better. And when their tournaments get better, ours are going to have to be better to stay ahead of theirs, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And just going back to Australia, so you found business partners um, just on, through connections, and how do you manage? And you invested forty k is a to me is a pretty large sum of money. That's a lot of faith and trust to put into people to delegate to guys you didn't know very well. As far as hey, we're going to store this, we're going to make sure that we run, make sure everything's up to date as far as insurance goes, that the venue contracts are legit, the risk management is there, there'll be medical staff set up there and we're managing the logistics of everything else that goes into it because this it is there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of, of attention and detail need to take place um that's a huge leap of faith to take um and people halfway around the world on your part how did you uh, that, it also takes a lot of leadership too to guide them and make sure that what their production is in line with what you want produced and the quality you want produced and the customer service well it was a big thing was that the first i went to australia three times this year in 2015 that's three times i flew to si and three times i flew back and each time i was there we had huge discussions about how is it going to be possible one day for me not to have to come back here for a year and for you to run the tournaments so i needed him to become like me where he knew exactly how to run the tournament by himself or with other people. I knew what it takes to delegate positions in a jiu-jitsu tournament to somebody because I've worked every position in my own jiu-jitsu tournament. From the medic, to the referee, to the table worker, to the announcer, I've set up events by myself. I've torn down events by myself. I, I, once, I once actually set up an event. It took me five hours to set up 10 rings at the Tommy's with, the, with all the screens and something, but I wanted to know what it was like. I needed to know what it was actually like to set up an event by myself or what each role recommends or requires. With Ben Hodgkinson in Australia, he was able to listen to me. He took every, all the advice I took. And then the last set of events, I was more like his assistant. I wanted to see him take charge. And he took, completely took charge. As far as the idea of now I'm not going to go to Australia and he's going to run the shows instead of me helping him while there, well, I always thought of it as like, you know, if you own a clothing store in a mall, you're not going to be the person that closes at the end of the day, the clothing store every day. You're not going to be the person that closes the restaurant at the end of the day. You have employees and delegated people who you have to trust with such business. And Ben Hodgkinson isn't only someone I trust in Australia now, but he, he was always on the same page as me when before the first events too. 
he he recognized the idea he said yes off the bat and ever since then he worked his ass off he went out and got all the sponsors for the events that for the first set of events he got the sponsors he staffed the events he did everything that i needed him to do he did it perfectly and then he's only made it seem easier since you know so although it's such a huge risk and you have to put so much trust in someone um that's what entrepreneurship really is i mean it doesn't matter how much money it could have been 10 grand it could have been 40 grand it could have been 100 grand you really need you really need to make that leap of faith if you really want to make more or you want to try to build something cuz that was a that was a that was a huge thought i had before going to australia and now going to the states is like should i just settle should i settle with just the canadian events and then after we started getting going in australia and we became very successful in australia should we stop now you know i could stop now you know not invest anything else take a salary and i'd be very happy but at the same time i'd feel like i wasn't accomplishing what i'm doing i need to actually you know i think i really need to compete with the ibjjf one day at this point <laughs> you know like to me it's not about oh i've i've grown something i'm happy with i'm proud to me it's like if i can't expand to more cities at one point i just want to stop I just don't even want to run grappling industry. To so me, it's about developing a huge product for everybody, not just for some regionals, uh, not for just Montreal, Toronto, Australia, but New York. If New York doesn't go well, I'm going to be upset. I'm going to work my ass off three times harder on the next New York show. But if New York can never work, I don't know if I'm the right guy for the job. You know, my my goal is to keep building grappling industries, keep reinvesting in it, build something, like I said, that can one day at least rival the IBJJF. IBJJF is so big, multi-million dollar sales a year. Um, just to euros, I mean, they must have made 400, maybe even half a mil in sales. Um, I want to just rival them one day. I want to know that I was able to start a brand that was able to rival the biggest in, in my industry, I suppose. And it's going to take a lot of leap of faith. It's going to take a lot of risks. It's going to take lots of mistakes. But I have all the time in the world. And so far, you've done pretty well. And now you're going into New York City, which is a big IBJJF hub. It's the home of uh, Nogi Pans. They have uh, several New York Opens throughout the course of the season. You also have, I think, Good Fight and a few Grappler's Quest was running shows out there. Naga's in the market. What makes uh, New York? Because you said. LA was saturated, but where do you see the opportunity in New York? Well, in my opinion, New York's actually not saturated. Grappler's mm -hmm. Quest actually is not around right now. Um, they only did one show last year. Five Grappling talked about New York a bunch. Five Grappling, unfortunately, isn't around either. Um, the IBJJF, uh, you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, they run their events in Baruch College as well. They actually don't. They run their events in City College, which is, oh my in, which is in Harlem. And that is, that's about an hour away from the core. Um, we're about a couple of blocks from Henzo's and Marcelo's. We're in downtown Manhattan. We are a much better location than City College. Um, then again, the big thing is, and even Naga. Naga rarely does New York. They like to do Albany and Plattsburgh and Lake George and stuff. They like to do regions, you know, where they can try to draw many people from. Um, and even then, Naga likes to always put shows a week before everybody else to draw away from their shows. Like they have an Albany show and a New Jersey show on the Sunday and an Albany show on the Saturday before a New York event just to try to take our numbers away a little bit. I don't think it's going to work. No one really cares about them anymore, it seems. Um, as far as New York, though, 
the, the biggest thing about New York is I always believe that if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And I believe that as far as jujitsu as well. I think New York is going to become a new hub for jujitsu like no one's ever seen. I think California is the hub in the States, but there hasn't been enough credit given to the East Coast New York hub. And I think when you have Marcellos and you have Henzos and you have the amount of affiliated gyms there and the amount of other affiliations there, it's such a huge scene. And then, of course, with the New York uh, Grappling Industries event, so many sponsors exist within that scene as well that it makes for a very interesting, uh, a very interesting hub or a community there that they always have to travel to California or somewhere else to compete when they're not getting enough. They're getting these IBJJF events, but they're like spring and winter opens. They're not really massive events. Besides for the IBJJF Pro, you couldn't actually win money before at the, in New York at IBJJF. As far as the risk in New York, then of course, yeah, to be completely honest, New York is probably the most expensive city, I think, in the States. I mean, the venue, <laughs> I've held events in Montreal and Toronto that cost less than the venue in New York. So um, that obviously, that's, that's the big thing that on my mind is how much money is being spent on this event. Because obviously, the tens of thousands of dollars being spent on the event has to be made back through the competitors and spectators. So basically I'm betting a lot on, I'm going to get a minimum number of competitors at that New York tournament. And that minimum number of competitors is actually bigger than a lot of people have ever ran a tournament, you know? And also uh, just out here, <coughs> New York, you also have to deal with unions as well as far as the staffing goes at the venue. As you run into that issue at all. With the venue? Yeah. Having to have, Union workers and with the venues, it was more like uh, just very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted specific types of insurance, which isn't a problem once you find the right broker. Um, as far as the staffing um, in New York, we've been very fortunate to get to work with Alberto Marchetti of uh, Hansel Gracie Black Belt. Um, he was one of the head refs for Five Grappling. He owns Manto. He also is a co-owner in uh, Rowmore Jiu Jitsu the store in New York. Um, so very respected man, very respected individual. Um, he'll be staffing our event alongside us. So um, although at first I thought it was a little tricky, I think the trickiest thing about the States, um, especially as a Canadian myself, is just how hard it is to incorporate there as a Canadian. Uh, you have to incorporate in every state, especially as an event company where we're holding events in each state. So I don't, I don't get to just come in and incorporate nationally. I have to incorporate it in every state. I have to set up a tax ID, like a sales tax ID in every state. Um, I have to get the insurance, uh, the policy to apply to each of those states, a little bit more money. Um, I need to get a work visa, obviously as a Canadian to do business in the states. So those are the more complicated things. I don't like dealing with lawyers or expensive accountants as well. I mean, all these paper pushers that charge a lot of money, but at the end of the day, they all do a great job. And I found a great lawyer team and a great accountant team to help me with this stuff. So, I mean, they've, they've started making it simpler for me. So as far as the little details, like the bookkeeping and those types of logistics, I mean, I've been doing that for years now. So it's just, just adding more like, like an example is, uh, I once heard like uh, adding another kid to a family is just putting more, um, broth and more vegetables in the, the soup. It's the same way in jujitsu where you're just adding, you're just adding a few little more tasks, but you're just replicating what you've been doing before. So, um, I think it'll be very interesting to be honest. And also you being in Montreal, um, you do have the contacts 
down in New York. How much uh, just groundwork and grassroots marketing have you had to do as far as just visiting with the Marcelo School, the Henzo School, dealing with some of their affiliates and other independent jiu-jitsu schools to rally them to um, be part of the grappling industries on March 12th? I can't even tell you if it's been successful so far, to be honest. I haven't held the event, but uh, it's all been theory, right? Um, you know, we mailed the gyms. We visited a bunch of the gyms. We had a bunch of friends visit gyms. Um, we've made contacts who are gym owners, uh, sponsors. Um, we have a lot of Facebook ads being ran right now to the States. Um, I think the budget on Facebook ads to just New York is about 2.5 grand we're spending. Um, so we're playing with a lot of different ways. I think the idea behind New York, Florida, and Chicago was we were going to spend money on every single advertising routine that we ever did. So although, for example, in Montreal, I don't mail posters to gyms, gyms anymore, and I don't do that in Australia either, we're going to do that in the States because we're, we're starting over. There's always an idea where once you become established, you can start to root out more, less successful ways of marketing, which is like mailing posters to gyms. I feel like that's not a very successful way of marketing, but it might get some people. So for our first events, we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to do Facebook. We're going to have to do social media ads. We're going to have to um, rip as many emails off of as many websites as possible, set it up in a database, make a list, send out an email campaign. I mean, we have to start at the beginning for the marketing in the United States. Um, I don't know if it's been successful. I mean, I know people have started signing up for the American events. I can't really comment until those those registrations are closed and I know if I, I was successful or not because in the States, I'm not looking for 200 competitors. I'm also, I'm looking for four or 500. I'm looking for the numbers that we get in Australia, you know, or, or in Toronto. Um, so I'm really looking for some big numbers. So that's why we're just trying every single marketing avenue that we've tried in the past that have made us successful. We're doing them all for the States, not just one or two. And one of the big hooks for your event and one of the headliners is Eddie Cummings versus Manchikiera. Um, how did that come about? Um, and how do you organize a super fight for an event like this and get in touch with the competitors or their managers to organize it? To be honest, like I've tried to run super fights in the past and you know, I've tried to do it on a local scale, you know, like purple belts, brown belts, some black belt fights, you know. I was supposed to have Dennis Kang versus uh, Daniel Tastos at the first ever Toronto event. And I'm not a very big fan of super matches, you know, or super fights or however you want to call them, to be completely honest. I feel like there's a lot of work involved in exposing these two people to the public, uh, educating the public on who these people are. They're not MMA fighters. They're not UFC champions. So if you take, like, two little-name black belts in BJJ, most people don't know who they are. You know, like, I get messages all the time, hey, I want to do a super fight for you. Well, to be completely honest, I don't, I don't want to sound like a, a dick, but I don't know who you are, man. You know, so... Um, I had the fortunate experience where Jeffrey Chu, who is uh, Gary Tonin's and uh, Eddie Cummings' manager, reached out to me. He said he saw the tournament. He had uh, he's friends with someone who I'm friends with. He wanted to reach out to me, maybe see like what about what about the tournament is interesting, as well as like talk about like his guys. And when I was talking to him, I actually told him that I'm a huge Eddie Cummings fan, which I am, um, and that I actually had an idea for a super fight from which. I was before obviously I called him I, I was trying to think of what could I offer this guy you know I want to try to see if I have anything for Eddie or Gary before I talk to him or see what else I can pitch him to maybe get to work with Jeff a little bit mm -hmm. and uh, 
I had thought of the idea for maybe Mancher versus Eddie would actually be really, really entertaining because one's from Henzo's, one's from Garcia's. Those two gyms are several blocks apart from each other. Those gyms are also several blocks away from my gym. Um, it would be a big draw since both those competitors are actually in that city. Their teammates are going to come watch. That's something that always interested me about a super match is if the guys in the super match can get a lot of people from their gym to actually come to the tournament. And a problem is like, Let's say I had Mancher, but I didn't have Eddie. I had Mancher versus some guy from Toronto or from Europe. You know, a lot of people might like the other guy, but he's not a he's not a local guy. So it's very hard to actually find two local guys that you don't have to fly in, you don't have to put up, and actually have them fight. And I I I thought of Eddie versus Mancher because they're both from New York. I mean, that's a rivalry. Mm -hmm. That means everybody in New York also. Pretty much, if you're in, if you like jujitsu in New York, you know who these guys are. So that that that's actually interesting. You know, those guys are actually really well liked in their gym, especially Mancher. Mancher is loved in Marcelo Garcia's. Um, so I thought that would actually make a huge draw. So I pitched that to Jeff. Jeff talked to Eddie. Eddie really liked the idea of fighting Mancher. Like Eddie supposedly has a list of people he wants to fight, and Mancher's on that list. So I went and talked to Manchier. I had met Manchier when I was at Marcelo Garcia's in October for two weeks. I told him about what I was trying to do. We went back and forth. Uh, Manchier's and Eddie's party went back and forth between me as the middleman um, about the rules because they, you know, Eddie wants like sub only. Manchier doesn't like sub only. He doesn't like the fact that you can fight for an hour and not have a winner or maybe a referee decision. He wanted a way that you could pick a winner. He wanted ADCC rules. Bounced it back to Eddie. Eddie was cool with the ADCC rules as long as there wasn't any minus points because of the Augusto match, of course, at ADCC and how he felt like. He beat the guy, but because of the rules, he didn't beat the guy. Um, so they actually both just agreed eventually, and the rest is history. I mean, I mean, they're gonna fight each other now. <laughs> yeah, and the, the two uh, schools. Well, Marcelo, uh, well before him, just the Alliance School, Fabio Clemente School, and the Henzo School. Yeah. They've had a long rivalry dating back to the mid '90s. You see some yep. online. Uh, you can see Babs versus Matt Serra, Henzo Gracie versus Marcelo, and then more recently, the new generation of guys, Gianni versus Gary Tonin, uh, Gary Tonin versus Mancher. So it's a, it's definitely a very good rivalry for jiu-jitsu, a good rivalry for the city, and um, you know I think it'll be definitely bring um, fans out from both schools and add a little bit more sizzle to this great event. I I think so, especially since those schools really like those competitors, but I think those schools also respect the other competitor. I mean, Marcelo's obviously respects Eddie. Uh, Hensel's obviously respects Manchir. I mean, those guys are really good. Manchir's guillotine game is really phenomenal. Of course, Eddie's uh, leg lock game is really phenomenal. It makes a very interesting match. Um, and that's something I was looking for. Not only a high, high, high-profile match where you wouldn't have to Google the guys, but especially in that local region, you would especially not have to local, uh, Google those guys. So my big thing was I wanted the draw to be mainly New York. Um, the fact that both of them are so well-known outside of New York, that's just a plus. But I think it's a, an absolute barn burner of a match, very exciting. And to be honest, I'm very stoked to actually watch it myself. I put it on because I'm a fan, and that's the match I wanted to see. I posted the story on Facebook about how I'm a fan of these guys and how one reached out to me, like uh, Jeff reached out to me. So um, I knew automatically once Jeff reached out to me, oh, I've got some ideas I'm going to put together for you, buddy. <laughs> 
Yeah, Jeff, he's definitely he definitely hustles for his guys. He's a great has a great vibe, very uh, creative. Great dude. guy. Very creative. He, and also uh amazing photographer too. Yep. Uh, you guys follow him on Instagram. I, I forget his handle, but just look it up, Jeffrey Chu. Um great manager, great artist. Uh, I think it's uh Fighter Plus. Yeah, Fighter Plus. Um an all around good guy too. And just again, um, want to get back to where you're zagging, where the IBJJF is zigging. Your your events, you pay out cash prizes to everybody, <laughs> even the white belts. That's not common. Why the white belts when you don't have to? Why the blue belts when you don't have to? We're not really zagging where other people are zigging or any of that. We're just winging it, to be completely honest, and we're winging it very, very, very well. To be <laughs> none of us still know what we're doing at this point. Like, although I've learned about business, like we we talked to earlier when I didn't have any business experience at first. Now I have business experience, but I don't have international expansion experience. I mean, you don't just come up with that and read a book and it all makes sense. There's no blueprint. Um, what are we like the white belts? To answer your question, I've always had the philosophy that if you look at the competitors' numbers of an event, the white belts are what's paying for the tournament. There's no black belts at a tournament, man. They are the lowest demographic at the tournament. Brown belts are super low demographic. Advanced, nogi, very low demographic. You can't just give money to these people, although they, you know, spent the more time in jujitsu and they're the more higher level of jujitsu. There are there are ten times more white belts in the tournament than black belts. I mean, because of them, the tournament was able to even afford the cash prizes. Why would I not give those guys a cash prize? It just wouldn't make any sense to me, to be honest. And once we started doing that, I mean, that's when all, that's so much respect started coming from that. The same thing for white belt women. I mean, white belt women is the biggest women's class in the tournament. It's not blue belt or purple belt or brown black belt women. Why would brown black belt women get a get a cash prize when you know they're so rare you know then again i want to give the brown and black belt women and i want to give the brown and black belt uh, men prizes as well so i just give prizes to everyone for some reason our budget allows it while other tournaments budgets don't I, I just don't get that if you actually knew how much money tournaments made you'd be just as pissed off as i am that more tournaments don't give away these cash prizes it just makes no sense we're charging people a hundred dollars a head you think that we don't have any money to give away at the end no come on guys I mean, every tournament has money left over that they can give to competitors. They just choose, uh, they just choose whatever they choose to do with it. I guess obviously deserve money. Biggest demographic in the tournament. I, I'm not even willing to argue that with anyone. They deserve it right off the bat. And just another reason: if you live in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, even Maryland, Delaware, another reason why you should head up to New York on March 12th and sign up for the Grapplers Industries. And just another talking point is it's not single elimination. You have this interesting round-robin format where you face get a minimum of, what, three matches? Three to four matches. So there's, there's several pain point benefits that we really have, like the round-robin structure. It's like very much like World Cup soccer or something like that. Uh, to put it in layman's terms, where let's say there's ten people in a com in a division, we'll break them down into five, two five, two uh, divisions of uh, five competitors, two pools. They'll fight everyone. They'll get four matches each, and then we'll have a playoff. You know, we really want to find out who the best is in the division. Not only do we want to find out who actually is the best in the division, but the whole reason someone signed up for our tournament and gave us so much money, first of all, in the first place, was because they wanted to compete. 
how how can a competitor compete one match, lose, be out, and say, oh, I got my experience? You didn't get shit. You should have had more matches. You paid for it. You know when you you know. The thing is, like, look at Tough Mudder. People say Tough Mudder is too expensive. Running around an obstacle course, you pay a hundred bucks. Yeah, but that lasts several hours. Imagine paying a hundred dollars. You do five to ten minute jujitsu match, and you lose, and you're out. It doesn't make any sense. You should have gotten more experience. There's more people in the division, more people in your position who want more experience. Why not? Why not have that? Another thing we're doing differently is that we have we try to set up a camera on every mat. The fact is, a lot of people want to watch their footage afterwards. I don't believe in charging for it. I had a friend one time who entered a tournament. He paid like 50 bucks for his tournament footage. That's ridiculous. So we set up a camera on every mat. We recorded. We uploaded for free. It just seems a realistic thing to do. People want to watch their fights. If we can record them, we should upload them free for people. I mean, and the other thing is, and, and this is the thing that bothers me the most, is that especially in America, um, there's so many tournaments that are so disorganized. Um, I've competed in the Nagas that I competed at 1 a.m. in the morning. I mean, what, what the fuck am I competing at 1, in the, 1 a.m. in the morning? You told me I was going to fight at 6 p.m. I mean, if you're going to tell someone you're going to fight at 6 p.m., it should be either uh, – that division should run either at 5.30 or 6.30 the latest. I mean, you really need people in charge of your schedule who know what the fuck they're doing. Um, you look at some of these tournaments like the Nagas, the Grapplers Quest, or any tournament that runs where you can still register on the day of the event. You can't have an exact schedule if you still don't know how many people are going to register that day of. That's why you have to run pre-registration, and you need someone who knows how to make the brackets make sense, how to make the schedule make sense. We use a group called Madeleine Tournament Management. It's, we've worked with them for several years. It's who Five Grappling hired. It's who Jiu-Jitsu World League hired. It's who Rev Gear Open hired. And all these brands hired these people, but we've been working with them for years. So obviously, the whole idea of all disorganized tournament or anything, the moment someone called my tournament disorganized a couple of years ago, I went to work on fixing that. I mean, I can't have you come to my tournament, have a bad experience because it's disorganized. Or even, or another problem is the referee is not skilled enough. The referee don't know what they're doing. I can't have that shit happen. My reputation is on the line. My tournament has to run organized. The referees have to be good. The benefits such as the round robin, the recording, the prizes, it all has to be good. The production itself has to be good too. I mean, if I want to one day, like I said earlier, rival the IBJJF, I have to do things right. I can't just lay down some discolored mats on the ground, uh, put some flipboards, hire some friends as referees, and then try to draft up a schedule by myself. We're trying to run a professional company here, you know? So we're going to try to do a lot of things differently. The round robin is a huge benefit. It's one of the hugest things that we do. Every time a competitor tries our round robin experience, he says, "Wow, I have experience because of your round robin format. I'm going to get better because of this." And then they get to watch their fights. They get to learn even more from watching their fights free after we post them. And if they got to win, if they actually ran the gauntlet in the absolutes, they got money. I mean, people have a great day at our events because that's that's the goal of our events. You know, it's not about collecting your money and being like, "Oh, we want to give you one or two fights." That's not to go here. I like so, the round robin format just because I did a single elimination tournament this weekend at Cerritos, and with the randomness of the draws, the finals could take place in the first round for yep. all you know, whereas with round robin, you find out who the best person is when everybody matches up with each other. 
And Jerry, another thing is like, I don't understand how single elimination tournaments are so disorganized. You're running like five times, you're running two and a half times less fights than a round robin tournament when you're running single elimination. So another way, a lot of people ask me, well, if you're running round robin, how do you keep on schedule? Well, we bring in more mats and we bring in more staff. So we're a typical IBJJF 400 competitor tournament might have six or eight mats. We'll run 12 or 14 mats with a bigger staff to, of course, accommodate those mats. But there's always going to be balance. I, I mean, I don't understand how you have a 200 competitor tournament and you're disorganized when a 400 competitor round robin tournament can stay on schedule. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I'm calling out a lot of people right now. I hope they don't mind. <laughs> But I mean, like, I mean, this is type of stuff you should have figured out after two or three tournaments. I mean, you can't run 10, 15 tournaments and still be looking to fix these problems. If you have a problem, you have to fix it right away. And that disorganization part, it comes, it comes like you'll you'll figure it out right away. It happens to everybody right away. But the round robin thing, I mean, that's the biggest benefit we offer. I mean, that if we take away the round robin, we're nothing. You know what I mean? We're just an average tournament at that point. You know, I know you said, no one else does that. That's a great zag to me. I know you're saying you, you, you know, you you didn't read the biz, do the business stuff and, and all, but that is a great differentiator, a gr and, and definitely another reason why people should sign up. Some people um, might try to do round robin. You see, you saw the Meta Morris tried to do the round robin. No one's doing round robin like us. We're the biggest, in my opinion, we're obviously the biggest round robin tournament in the world. And as we get more eyes on us and people are like, what do you mean you can fight more than once in a tournament even if you lose? What do you mean I can lose three times in the same tournament? I'm okay with that. I'll do that. You know, once more and more people find out about that, only more and more people are going to sign up for our tournament. And that's that's what's been happening. People are tired of paying $100 for one fight and that they might lose or, you know, they want more experience. That is that is the number one reason people sign up for tournaments is to fight. And if you're not going to give them fights, what good of a tournament are you really? I mean, you have the opportunity to give them more fights. There's more people in their division. Why don't you do it? And then now you're seeing a lot of double elimination stuff. Like that's going to correct the problem. It really doesn't. But, you know, um, but at least at least double elimination is starting to exist. But we've taken this step further. We've always ran round robin since day one. We've never ran a single elimination tournament or a double elimination tournament, 50 tournaments, all round robin. And I had a question about your, um, I know you mentioned the software, but also just the round robin format. What happens if someone no-shows where you have to consolidate brackets? Are you able to then quickly um, adjust and move someone to another bracket or division or consolidate? And if someone misses weight, are you able to accommodate them and move them to the division up really quick on a fly? That's very interesting, Jerry. Um, first of all, if you miss weight in our tournament, we have to be strict about it. Look, we're not responsible for you making weight. And at first, in the first tournaments, we really wanted to put people in a higher weight class if they missed weight. But after, at the end of the day, look, we have a responsibility to stay on schedule, right? Because that's the schedule we gave the people. If you missed weight, whose fault is that? It was it my responsibility to make sure you missed weight? I even give people a pound allowance. I mean, if, if you miss weight and you missed a pound allowance, it's not my fault, man. I'm just trying to follow protocol that was told ahead of time to people. I mean... As far as um, the question was about, sorry, it was about. Are you um, able to adjust the brackets on a fly? Ah, uh, yes. No so, depending, yeah. 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 So, quality. usually what happens is in the second half of the day, people start to drop out of their second division. That happens a lot, too. You know, they do their gi division, they get hurt, they, or maybe they get tired during their no gi division and they don't want to do anymore. Um, what we do is, if we can, we can tr try to re bracket that 
division right away. Um, that's usually the best way. Sometimes we can't re-bracket it because the competitor will drop out of their fourth match or they'll get hurt in their third and then they can't do their fourth or they'll stop halfway after two matches. What we try to do then is we try to reevaluate the situation in that division. Maybe sometimes if the person dropped out of two fight, after two fights and that person's out now, the, the two people that left for that person to fight could have fought the other two people that now are not going to fight. Or, for example, if you have two fights left um, against guy A and guy B, but most times guy A and guy B might not have fought. So that's another way to rebracket it. There's there's a lot of ways to rebracket a division. Um, we have a lot of experience with that. So we always try to keep it fair, I guess. That's the main thing. You have to You always have to put yourself in the shoes of the competitors in that division. You know, if I was in that division and this happened to me where this got rebracketed like this, would I be okay with it? Because if I'm not okay with it, I can't make that rebracket properly. You know what I mean? I don't want to rebracket something and then certain competitors in the in that division feel shifted. I mean, that's the most horrible thing. You didn't pay $100 to enter my tournament and then your bracket got rebracketed and then you got shifted it where you're now at a, a shitty end of it, you know? So yeah. there's a lot of way there's a lot of ways to rebracket, but if someone drops out of a bracket, we always look at the bracket right away and try to really break it down and like correct correct the issue, make sure everyone's still getting the same number of fights, so we can actually draw a proper record against each other. Um, but yeah, it, it was a problem we ran into the first couple of events we ever ran, um, but it's something that we really I believe I think we've fixed. I mean, there's always going to be issues. Like once we go to the states, I have to educate all the table workers and all the referees of the situations. Of course, that could happen, but I'll be there to walk them through it as well. And I think we'll get through it. Mm -hmm. And also, you have the cash prize. You have the YouTube broadcast as well, where your competitors can go back and rewatch their matches. Where and uh, a lot, a lot of these are great sponsorship opportunities. And you've talked about how you grew your sponsorships in Canada, Australia, and currently have. I saw your poster for the March 12th event. Lots of sponsors on board. How do you approach growing your sponsors and uh, giving them different assets um, that are sponsorable, whether it be the cash prize, or the YouTube feed, um, or other forms of signage and activation? You know, at the beginning. I thought that finding sponsors was the actual hard thing. Now that I've grown up a lot and I've really taken the job as a promoter much seriously, I realize finding sponsors is not the hard thing anymore. Keeping the sponsors happy is the responsibility and the hard aspect of it. I realized how to get a sponsor. Finding a sponsor is as easy as going to someone and saying, look, I don't want to put your logos everywhere. What I want to do is if you give me a hundred bucks, I want to make you 200 bucks. I want to make you your sales back and the profits enough to cover your investment in me. Because that's what they want. Mm -hmm. They don't want to invest in you for exposure. There's easier and cheaper ways to get exposure. The 200 bucks they invest in me, they could put in Facebook or Instagram or Google ads, any cheap way of doing advertising. Um, they could print out a ton of flyers and give them out. Those are all probably just as good ways as paying me to put your logo on my poster. But at the end of the day, my selling point is, look, if you're going to give me this money, my goal is to make you that money back and more so that you can actually see your return. And that's what I mean by I, it's easy now to find the sponsors because I understand what I'm pitching to them. I, I, I know what the mentality is, what my assets are, what my values are when I pitch to this person. But the real responsibility I have now 
is to follow up, to make sure that they get their exposure, to make sure that people are at least going to their website, they're getting that traffic, people are at least purchasing. Um, for example, I'm wearing a Choke Boy sweater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, when Choke Boys gave me the sweater, I'm like, man, trust me, I'm going to go home, I'm going to wear this sweater for a month, I'm going to try to get all my friends to buy Choke Boy sweaters. And now there's a bunch of my friends wearing Choke Boy sweaters. So that, that that's an idea of how, by giving me a sweater, I've also sold four or five sweaters for you, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. I need, the brands don't care about exposure when it comes to financial sponsorships as much as they care about making their money back and making a return. And that's what a lot of competitors don't understand, um, especially competitors who are looking for sponsors. It's a little different when you're a tournament. A lot of competitors will go up to the tournament uh, or I mean to sponsors and they'll be like, sponsor me, I finished on the podium the last five tournaments. How does that make the sponsor money, you know? I mean, hundreds of people finish on the podium in a tournament, you know? How are you different from these other companies? How are you able to make this sponsor money? As a tournament, I can offer them booths at the event. There's lots of walking around traffic between spectators and competitors. And unlike MMA events, the competitors and spectators and parents at Jiu-Jitsu events, they like to actually buy stuff at the Jiu-Jitsu event. They like to go home. With so I'm offering a lot of ways to my sponsors to actually make some return back. Plus all the exposure we're putting in, especially since we're spending so much on the marketing, they're getting that exposure back for their logos, of course, anyways. That's another thing. I mean, a lot of people would just throw up a poster and they'll say, oh, look, I put your logo on the poster. We, we put our posters online, but we also boost the shit out of it with money. <laughs> you know, so at least, at least the posters are getting tens of thousands of views compared to just 1,000 or 5,000 views. Um, at the same time, then they have the booth. Then they have the additional posts we're making. Or... or or our goals of our sponsors are to drive sales to these people. If we can drive sales to these sponsors and they can get the sales knowing that the sales came from us, they'll sponsor us again 100% of the time. And like lately, like in the last year, we have like an like 85, 90% retention rate. Um, and that's very important to me. We really need to retain these sponsors. You know, if sponsors sponsor you for a year and they drop off, it's going to be impossible to get that sponsor back. They're going to go sponsor the noob guys on the block. You know, like if they don't like me, the new the next tournament that comes to New York, they're just going to sponsor them. That's not my job is to keep these sponsors, you know, make them say, I want to grow of grappling industries. Grappling industries makes me my money back. I'm going to support and I'm going to grow and see, see through grappling industries expansion of them. That's what I want. I want my sponsors to say, Oh, New York was awesome. I want to come to Florida with you. I want to go to Chicago with you. And you're starting to see sponsors do that. And in Australia, our sponsors are going everywhere now. Um, in the States, you see BJJTs. They're coming to Chicago and Florida as well as New York. Even though they're a Chicago brand, they're going to come to New York and Florida. Those are the types of people I want to work with. I want to, I want to work with brands that want to be there with us, that we have extra opportunity to make them sales and prove our value to them, give them actual real statistics and data that they can actually analyze and see, well, you know what? Sponsoring grappling industries is a good investment. And then they have the data and statistics in front of them to prove them why. I mean, I mean, like I said, the biggest, hardest part I've ran in with sponsors now is just retaining them. I've, I'm getting a ton of sponsors coming in. My biggest goal is just to keep everyone happy. I have to be the parent, you know? Yeah, and one of the key metrics I, um, in your report that uh, are the most compelling to your sponsors uh, when you tell them, when you're assessing their ROI, uh, what pops the most to them? Um, to be to be completely honest, like 
I'm willing to share a lot of information with the sponsors like the Facebook reach is our Facebook reach is actually much higher than the typical brand that you'd expect even you know reach has nothing to do with the number of likes on the Facebook page of course you know um, just because you have a certain number of Facebook likes you don't get that much reach um, the reach is always much much higher than the number of likes so we have interesting stats as far as that we have interesting stats as far as how many emails we actually have in our opt-in list already opted in we have uh, interesting uh, statistics as far as how many emails are actually opened and how many clicks are in those emails um, we have very interesting stats of the number of competitors at our events of how many people actually buy at our event how much previous sponsors at our events have actually made and how much of that is profit and how much they actually spend to be there these are all things that the sponsors actually want to know they don't want to know if like oh you guys run a bunch of events you guys are cool or whatever you know all oh, you guys finished on the top of the podium they want real information you know like if you if you're running an exposure deal we have to show them our our reach our people engaged on Facebook the number of emails the clicks the cost um, stuff like that that's that's really what people want to know um, how many people are going to walk by their booth that day? How many people are going to be at that event that day? You know, and if there's not, and if I can't make the money back at the event, what other ways do you have to make sure? You know, so for example, if they don't make the money back at an event, we're going to run an email campaign just on them. You know, to make sure that that sponsor gets their sales back. You know, makes their money back. You know. Um, you have to go the extra mile for every single sponsor. Every sponsor is different. You can't just say, oh, that sponsor's on board. I've given him what I've given him. That's not the point. The, the point is that that sponsor has, like, that sponsor invested in you. I mean, they took a leap of faith in you. You know, you have to pay them back. That's the way I look at it. I look at, I look at sponsors like loans in a way where someone else is paying them back for me. <laughs> but I, it's very important that they get paid back, you know, and those are sales. And, Sales are sometimes hard to produce, but you got to do it. No, I definitely love that perspective and attitude in terms of servicing and retaining your sponsors and getting the value that they pay for. Um, I mean, I've been lucky as well. Where one of my best friends uh, went to university in statistics, so once they came out of it, I mean, they they showed me everything about the data behind email campaigns, the data behind click funnel campaigns, the data behind. Um, what the actual information insights on Facebook actually mean. Most people don't understand what their insights on Facebook actually means. You know, uh, looking at heat maps of our website, where do people show up on, how much time do they spend at each part of our website, or how fast do people drop off when we post a video on YouTube, stuff like this. These are very important information. Stats are king in a way. You know, if you can provide good stats, um, people are going to be very interested, you know. And I think that's something that we, we, we've done actually really well is we can, re, we can actually supply stats to our sponsors. And usually, I mean, a lot of sponsors lately haven't even cared. They just see people jumping on board and they talk to us for a little bit and they realize, hey, fuck, we want to be part of this too. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we can work out a deal. There's always deals to be worked out. And again, you use stats to grow your sponsorships. You use other, uh, even going back to your growth, an expansion to Australia, you use stats based on the competitors list and seeing the opportunity there. Just want to touch real quick, 2016 you have again shows in Australia, Canada, United States, and that's just the spring, right? Where, where's the rest of 2016 hold for you guys and what do you see in the future as far as your growth expansion and uh, <laughs> again, 
Again, I told you, it's all winged, man. <laughs> no one understands it, but it's really, it's really winged at this point. So there's eight events uh, in the first like four months. Um, there's eight. Th those eight events are in eight cities across three different countries. Um, in Australia, we're doing Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, the Gold Coast. In Canada, we're doing Montreal, Toronto, Hamilton. In the States, we're going to start with Manhattan, Chicago, Boca Raton. I mean. I mean, that's a lot of work. Already, my goal this year is to try to hit 25 events. I don't think getting to 23, 24 events is not the issue, but 25, 26 events might need like one more show added somewhere. I, If the American expansion goes well, we already have the production in the States. It's as easy at that point as incorporating in an additional state, setting up the tax ID there, and getting a staff. I want to add Washington if the first three states go good. I want to add Washington, D.C. I want to add Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, maybe Atlanta. I want to start moving westwards. I want to go uh, – I really want to put a show in Texas, you know. And all I have to do is make it through these first three sets. If I can make it first – make it through New York, Boca Raton, and Chicago, the states is open to me. The states is mine. In, in my mind, the States is going to be mine if I can make it through those first three shows. Because then I can just continue to just flop shows everywhere. I can just put shows in every city. Um, but, of course, every time I put a show in a new city, I'd want to make sure it's done right. We restart the marketing campaign all over again at the beginning, just like we did in the States for new cities as well. But as far as what, what's next, I can't tell you. It's all winged. You know, I don't know how these first three American shows are going to turn out. I, I don't have any stats on these shows. I don't know if they make money. I don't know like if I have to lower the budgets on these shows. I don't know if New York's venue is too expensive. That's the cost of New York venues. I mean, um, I don't know if it's going to be too expensive for me to truck my mats down from New York, New Jersey, down to Florida and then bring them back between trucking, rental insurance on the rental truck. I know how much it's going to cost, but is it going to play well into the Florida budget? There's a lot of logistics. I can't really answer where I'm going to be tomorrow when I have to just do today's work, I guess, first in a, in a better point of view, I suppose, of mine. You know, I, again, I have to be rational about everything, right? Like, I can't lie to myself. I can't make up numbers in my head being like, oh, I'm going to go to New York and get a thousand competitors. Man, it takes work. You know, you got to put you got to put the work in. I don't believe in destiny. I, get, I believe you get the, for you get whatever you put the work in for, you know? I mean, that's the way I believe in it, at least. For a guy that you're saying is winging it, it you're doing I, – I definitely <laughs> think like it's all pretty well thought out to me. <laughs> so so. – and I've had a lot of time to think about all this, man. <laughs> I've had a lot of time, a lot of lonely time to think about all this. And you're going with these three cities, Boca Raton, Chicago, and New York. Completely winged. <laughs> but you did learn a lot from five, uh, what Five Grappling went through a year or two ago and another one where we're going to switch topics a little bit, Metamorphs Challenger, which were both, both promotions had very ambitious plans. And last week you cut almost like a WWE style promo on uh, Met Metamorphs and its founder Halleck. Um, you you were you you kind of sit in similar shoes as he did. Um, what irked you about how Halleck's done business? Well, first I don't want to say I'm in the same shoes as Halleck. When I put on a tournament, I put it on in a venue. I don't put it on in someone's gym. I mean that's completely different. First of all, I'm spending thousands of dollars. I'm spending thousands of dollars plus insurance money plus rental of a staff to help me unload trucks and renting trucks to move my stuff to this venue. Halleck didn't do any of that. Halleck 
Halleck rented some gyms from some gym owners who he didn't pay, and then he just had like some friend of his run him as a referee. I mean, there, there were nothing more than in-houses. To say that Halleck accomplished anything close to what I have as a tournament promoter is a joke. I mean, as far as the actual Metamorris show, I feel like all we did with Metamorris was show us a taste of something that we can't have. I mean, Metamorris's production was so top level that like he couldn't afford it. He couldn't afford that type of production with what he was paying the athletes. He was paying the athletes way too much. I don't mind saying it. The guys that he was paying, he was paying too much. And at the same time, he was certain guys like Gary Tonin, when he fought Kid Dale, didn't get his plane ticket paid for. Kit Dale didn't get his plane ticket paid for. You know, they make Metamorris sound like it's some big thing. It really wasn't. And I mean, once you really get into the idea of what Metamorris did, I mean, you'd really be unimpressed. They announced 25 miniature tournaments. Really, then they canceled it. They wouldn't refund half the people for these tournaments, which makes the rest of us tournament promoters like myself look bad because then people are going to question refund policies at tournaments now, which they already were doing before. You know, a lot of people don't want to sign up until the last days in case they need a refund and then they can't get a refund from a tournament. How it made all this look like the norm? Like you sign up for a tournament and then you don't get a refund back. Fuck you, you know. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Halex's tournaments. Like Halex didn't. Like, how can you run twenty-four tournaments in a single day? I mean, you've never run a tournament before in your life. You're not at any of these tournaments. Halex didn't even show up at the Metamorphs Challenger in uh, in LA. I mean, I I I just came from TriStar before this interview with you, man, and. Over there, there was two guys I was training with, Olivier Taza, a purple belt, and Solomon Ribeiro, an alliance black belt. And both those guys won $500 and plane tickets from Metamorris. They didn't get their plane tickets, and they didn't get their $500 fucking dollars. So, I mean, if I have two friends who have already been ripped off, how the fuck? There, there must be so many other people. And it, it just sucks that we live in this jiu-jitsu community where Halle Gracie's a big name. So what Halle Gracie says trumps the smaller, the smaller people's opinions. You didn't pay these people. I mean, that's fucking fraud, man. I mean, if I ran a jiu-jitsu tournament in Manhattan March 12th and I didn't pay Eddie Cummings or Manchur after the match, you think I would ever get to put on another tournament in uh, New York? No. Halleck doesn't pay people a bunch of times. And he, for some reason, fighters keep finding ways to want to fight for him. I don't know why. Fighters should all just say, okay, look, we're not going to fight for Halleck until everyone gets paid. I mean... Like, I don't care what he's done before. The fact is, in the current situation, there are too many people that have not been paid. There are too many people on that bought merch or have bought subscriptions that are getting charged for not getting what they actually bought. I mean, you can't make excuses for this stuff. You also can't write it up. This is, I mean, I just don't understand how he's even part of our community, to be honest. I. I mean, it just, I don't even have to explain it. I mean, I mean, he's fucked so many people over. <laughs> I mean, and just clarify, you have this document, you have friends. This this isn't just slander. This is just. Oh, no, 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 no. You see, you see, I respect any entrepreneur that does something. You risk it, you risk money, you put time and effort into something. But I also had the, I always had the idea that, and we talked about it at the beginning, I got loans at the beginning from families and friends. You know, I didn't have investors and stuff. But when I got these loans, there was nothing more important to me in my life than paying those people back. Even the people who had so much money that they didn't even need my money back, 
I had to make my money back for those people. I had to give that money back to those people. When someone lends me a dollar, I need to give them back the dollar. And th that's the type of person I am. Halleck feels like he can just tell people, oh, I'll give you this much. They put in work and effort for him, and he doesn't give them money back. I, I know what slander, and I know what all, I know what liberal is and all this stuff. And to be completely honest, I have the sources. <laughs> I have friends who can show you credit card receipts of multiple transactions for something they didn't get. I can show you people who can show you a t-shirt purchase from Meta Morris. They didn't receive their fucking t-shirt. I have friends who everyone knows won the Meta Morris challengers. Everyone knows because there's so many people online, you know, there's pictures and videos of these guys winning Meta Morris challengers, but you know, can Meta Morris show you a check receipt? or any type of receipt at all for any of the people that paid $500? What is the fucking excuse here anyways? You 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 paid, you promised people $500, no one got $500. I mean, the topic is over right now as far as I'm concerned. No one got paid, Metamorris should be shut down. I mean, to be honest, someone should call the cops on Metamorris. Metamorris is off calling cops on people taking over their Instagram. I mean, I'd fucking smash your Instagram. I'd fucking, I'd delete it if I was uh, AJ Azagram. I'm surprised AJ Azagram just didn't fucking delete the thing, to be honest, or use the similar password and go into Facebook and delete that shit too. I mean, I mean, I don't understand how many, so many people are old money and they are still in business, or they give the the face that they're still in business, but there's never going to be another man more. So I mean, it's old news. Halleck, Halleck's not welcome into our scene. Everyone knows this. Yeah, and um, with some undisclosed big names, um, they shared some information with me, and it, it it's going to be pretty hard for him to get ta uh, top level talent to go back to his shows again. Uh, as far as I just wouldn't understand why someone would want to go. Let's say, like for example, Bushesh and Roger, they fought on the first Metamorphs. Amazing fight, great job, Halleck, for putting it on. Eddie Bravo and Horler, they fought, great fight, great job, Halleck, for putting it on, but. So many people did not get paid that why would a guy like Roger Bouchesh or Eddie Bravo or whoever go back and fight there when they might get paid, but there's so many other people that won't. Like if you want to support jujitsu, you have to support the whole thing. You can't just support the fact where you benefit. You know, I benefit as a promoter when my tournaments are successful. I also make sure everybody's paid and that there is enough of the budget and enough of my profits being reinvested in to make it bigger for people in the future. You know, I've ran 50 tournaments, thousands of transactions, man, and not one person can ever say I didn't pay them. Alex ran, what, four or five fucking shows, and he's got groups and groups of people complaining that they haven't been paid. I mean, I don't understand how we are even having this conversation. It's fraud, man. Someone's going to call the cops on them eventually. It might be me, to be honest. <laughs> and you're currently in a tournament business. There's a void that Metamorphs is leaving in the United States. EBI's on the West Coast. Do you ever see yourself leveraging the um, tournaments you're running already in the U.S. to hold Metamorphs like super cards as the main event? Oh, man, I don't really believe that super fight shows as far as jujitsu makes sense right now. Even EBI, they advertise a lot of cash prizes. EBI is very entertainment, uh, very entertaining. Eddie Bravo does a great job with it, but the money is always potential winnings. You know, you have to sub your opponent to actually get it. So even though you know, um, I heard Eddie Cummings give an example one time. You could win your first three matches not by sub, and you might not have any money yet. 
you know so even if you win the tournament you might not get any money if you don't win by a sub so it's very interesting how that works i can understand what eddie's doing by trying to push the sub but you still might not get paid so on a smaller scale where i'm just gonna have a bunch of fights and i'm gonna guarantee everyone purses a lot of these jiu-jitsu guys really want a lot of money they want more money than mma fighters want sometimes mm -hmm. you know like I, I'm not going to give you exact numbers, but Eddie, Eddie Cummings and Manchia are making more money for me than a typical MMA fight would cost to put on. So now we're valuing jujitsu higher than MMA fighters, where at the same time, you know, the MMA show will most likely get much more spectators than a, a jujitsu super fight show. So it's very interesting how the logistics are completely different and they don't make sense at the same time. As far as like my plan, if I ever branched off and started a second company, which obviously I'm gonna plan to do eventually. I mean, I have second and third companies already. But the, the the next idea for me as far as like the combat industry would be to have an MMA show, to be honest. Where like in Montreal, we're very weak. We used to have the best MMA scene in the world. We have George St. Pierre, Patrick Cote, David Wazo, um, Jonathan Gula, Ivan Menjivar, Mark Hominick, Sam Stout, all from one promotion. One promotion like created all those fighters for the UFC. Like half those guys have fought for titles, you know? George St. Pierre is one of the best fighters to ever exist. Patrick Cote is still there. <laughs> he fought last week, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting. But now in Montreal, in Toronto, there is no MMA shows. So you have tons of up-and-coming talent and there is nowhere for them to fight. And all they need is some experience. So what I wanted to do was in, in the future was to create an MMA show where it wasn't really about the fighters, it was more about the show. And then I'd be able to get these fighters more fights frequently, is my goal, by having more shows, maybe once every month. Um, and this way, those fighters can get more fights, they can be sent to the UFC after a while, and I can continue to create an idea of a show where people can actually get the experience, like, like Rappling Industries, and then get into the UFC. Like, to be honest, there's no competing with the UFC. Uh, not at least from my position or my financials, but um, but there's no problem with being a feeder to the UFC. You know what I mean? And uh, there's a lot of money to be made in MMA. I think if you do it very, if you do it right, then you'll you'll grab not only a lot of attention, a lot of hype, a lot of reputation, but you can also make a little bit of money, or at least you'll have you'll have built something that at least benefits other people, and then you can delegate it away. You know, as long as it doesn't make money. I mean, as long as it, it, it doesn't lose money. So um, I'd be much more interested in starting an MMA promotion um, on a small scale than a jiu-jitsu super fight show on a, a small scale. I mean, the cost of some of these guys, like Horler versus Eddie Bravo, I mean, that's like UFC cost prices for a fight, you know? And then, you know, you can... I blame Halleck for all this because Halleck should have known that his pay-per-views were not going to pay this off, man. You know? <laughs> I mean, you can't go around giving grapplers twenty grand for a fight. Look at yeah. Five Grappling. Five Grappling had those two eight-man, eight-man and eight-woman tournaments, were ten thousand dollars for a winner, five thousand dollars for second place, two thousand five hundred for the third place. That's thirty-five grand for two eight-person tournaments, and you're trying to make this back off of what pay-per-view sales? You put yourself in a big hole off the bat. You could have ran a free Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournament in New York, <laughs> and then tried to make the money back the next time. You know. Instead, you're trying to make money off of pay-per-view streams, and no one had ever proven the pay-per-view stream. Not even Meta Morris has yet to prove the pay-per-view stream um, system in jiu-jitsu. So I prefer to see a little bit more stats before I ever run some super fights that are going to cost me like tens and tens of grand to put on. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense from a financial standpoint right now.
again, for a guy that claims to be winging it, you ha- it seems like you thought about a lot of things. You have a pretty good head on your shoulders. I've had, um, a, I've had a lot of arguments. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I mean, I have a lot of time to think about it. it. It is, at this point, it is my full-time job. I left university in my last year. So instead of taking my graduation, I left so I could expand to Australia, so I could expand to USA. So I've had a lot of time to think about it. It really is like my whole life now is like trying to figure out how this thing can continue to build. It's like a baby. It's my first company. So of course, I'm always going to give it a little of attention every day, make sure that it has mindset theory, hypothesis behind it. But uh, no, I, I can't tell you how it's going to turn out, man. <laughs> to be honest, I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I just really want it to become really big one day. And that's to get there. You have to do. Uh, you have to risk a lot. You have to take a lot of leap of faith, like we t- talked about before. And you just kind of got to believe in it. You know. No, and I really enjoyed this conversation. And I told you I only take forty-five minutes of your time. I wound up taking, I think, an hour twenty of your time, and I really do appreciate it. Um, and I want people to know in jujitsu that are listening to this. This is inspiring because one thing I talked about when I compete, because we had a bunch of new guys compete in jiu-jitsu this weekend, it's about human potential. And your passion for grappling and jiu-jitsu led you to this whole new um, career and business for a history major. And it's really inspiring, you know, that how you've grown this from a small tournament in Montreal to being a global phenomenon. And I wish you nothing but luck with your Australia. I'm really excited to see what I'm seeing your spring lineup of events. I think it's awesome. I want to see what goes on rest of 2016. I asked what the plans are and where you guys are going. It's our genuine interest and excitement for you and what you guys are trying to build. You guys are great for community, the round Robin, the prize money, the value you're, focus on the customer and the grapplers and growing the sport. Um, Jay, I want to tell you, man, like that there are so many jujitsu brands we're seeing opening every day, Mm -hmm. be it apparel, uh, gi brands, other tournament brands, uh, people opening gyms, very important in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, those people who want to push gyms and actually get memberships in there. You know, a lot of people don't know what they're doing. I didn't know what I was doing at the beginning either. But you got to you gotta stay true to it. You got to – if, if you wanted to succeed, you're going to read business books. You're going to read accounting books. You're going to read marketing books. You're going to look up new theories. You're going to educate yourself. What do I have to do to take this project and make it bigger? Um, me, Nicholas Gregoritas, and Gabriella Rapone, um, the girl you saw here before we started the actual uh, interview live, um, we started a new project, for example. It was to bring the rules of jiu-jitsu in a clear way to competitors, okay? And at first, I didn't know how to film a DVD. I didn't know how to make a click funnel. I didn't know how – how do you sell a DVD? I, I'm used to selling tournaments, you know? How do you sell a DVD? To me, it was several things, you know? I, it was restarting the whole process again, you know? If you're interested in learning how to do something, then you're going to go online. You're going to learn marketing. You're going to learn accounting. You're going to learn business. And I think there's so many entrepreneurs now in jiu-jitsu that a lot of them are not doing all the work. I'd really like to see them do all the work. You're seeing a lot of people start with a t-shirt brand. They do it for a couple of months and they stop. They don't like it. They're not buying a big enough inventory. They don't have enough capital. It's really a shame, you know, because I think there's a lot of great ideas in the jiu-jitsu community. I just don't think that enough people are really taking that, you know, belief in themselves, you know. One of the things I did like uh, you said when you entered New York is you you reached out to people who were 
know the New York scene, know the venues, help coordinate the staffing. And that's important, finding mentors, finding people with networking, and finding people who know things that you don't know and learning from them and leveraging their experience to help you grow as well. That's that's another thing that people could benefit from uh, from your advice and your experience as well. Not just what you know, but just how you gain your knowledge from other people. That. It, you have to understand that you don't know everything and that you have to surround your people surround yourself by people who know more than you it's just that simple if you can't take criticism then you're in the wrong business you shouldn't be an entrepreneur first of all you need to you need to accept criticism you have to understand you're going to make mistakes you're going to be humiliated a lot but you have to surround your people yourself with people who know what they're doing and you have to be willing to listen to them and take that advice Sometimes someone's gonna. Sometimes people give me advice. I don't like their advice because it goes against what I've been doing. But I know their advice is better than what I'm doing. I have to take that leap of faith in that person. I have to show that I'm willing to be a student of the people around me. I don't understand business, you know. Like I didn't come from business, but I've been lucky to have so many great business people around me, men and women, marketers, men and women, who have just been able to give me so much knowledge, and I've listened to them and. Everything Grappling Industries has done can be credited to someone's idea. Like I made a video a couple of days ago. I said I am not self-made. I am a, a product of so many people's education and opinions, advice, and just belief in myself. For someone to take an hour and try to educate me on a marketing uh, theory, I mean, they're spending an hour trying to educate me. I should be willing to listen to them take notes on a piece of paper and then review my notes as if it was homework and then try to at least um, apply that idea. Um, if you can't listen to the people around you and if you, you're not willing to bring in people smarter than you because you, I don't know why not, then I mean you're only going to be held back by how smart you think you are. I mean tons of people that I've surrounded myself with on the grappling industries projects as well are 10 times smarter than me. I'm not the smartest guy in the room at grappling industries. I'll be completely honest with you, but um, I'm also, I also believe the most interesting person in the room is the most interested. So I'll ask so many questions to the people in the room because I'm so interested in hearing what they have to say. And then I get educated and it's paid off dividends. I mean, but you have to be willing to listen. And a lot of people, a lot of people like to talk, but they don't like to listen when they're given advice or they're they're told. I think this might be better. It might be. You should actually try it. <laughs> yeah, we had a jujitsu podcast, but it's become feels like the direction of it turned into almost like a jujitsu business entrepreneurial inspiration <laughs> podcast. And again, March twelfth. That's a big one that you're trying to promote in New York. How does someone register for it? Or so. Learn? Um, so interesting enough, you go to grapplingindustries.com, very easy. There's an events tab. Um, when you hit the events tab, there's a bunch of posters. It's the same thing as the registration tab. There's a bunch of posters. On the events tab, you can click a poster, the one that you want to register in or you want to read about on the events tab. It'll give you the event information. Um, on the registration tab, when you click a poster, it'll give you the registration form. So it's pretty easy website to uh, use uh, or to um, you know, to scroll around. The rules are up there. The division has its own tab. So, like I said, you go to the events tab, you click the event you want to read about. 
The only events currently missing from the events tab is Florida and Chicago. There needs to be some modifications made, but all the registrations are actually open on the registration tab right now. Um, Florida is actually being added tonight, the last one, and that's it. I mean, it's so easy. You go on the registration tab, you click the poster, you fill up the form, you make the PayPal payment. You don't have to be a member of PayPal. You can be a guest. You just have to enter your credit card information, and it's simple. It's And it's secure, unlike Metamoros. <laughs> Thought I'd say that. Thought I'd make one more stab. <laughs> well and again, going to be a great event in New York. Whether you're Lyons, Henzo Gracie, we're another school in the tri-state area, you can all agree that grappling industry is putting out a great event. Round Robin, none of that single elimination stuff. If your friends can't go and watch you, they can watch you on later on on YouTube. You could watch yourself on YouTube later on. So no need for your friend to hold your that cell is. phone crooked or uh, mess up recording it with shaky hands. You'll be able to watch it later on YouTube. Cash prize as well for the open weight divisions, even white belts. There's no reason not to attend or uh, register for this great event. And again, check out the site, Australia, Boca Raton, Chicago, Hamilton, Toronto, Montreal. And that's just this spring. And we're, we're really excited to see what else goes on in the summer, fall, and in the future on down with both grappling industries or other projects, including MMA and possibly down the road. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you, it. We wish you nothing. Yes. If I could just add one last thing to what you were saying yes. with Marcelo's and Alliance and all the and Henzo's and all the gyms that exist. I want people to understand as a tournament promoter, I've come to understand that my job is not to be biased. My job is not to promote to always the big gyms, but my job as a tournament promoter is to be the middleman. I want to be the middleman between all the gyms and my platform is a place where everyone can come together and figure out their differences or become friends or solve their rivalries. But at the end of the day, I'm just a middleman. Everyone else is going to solve their problems. And the mats, they're just the platform. That's and the best all, way I can describe it. We're all in the same community. and Absolutely. This weekend I, I competed myself. And when in my, whether I won, whether I lost, at the end, you shake hands, you hug, you congratulate each other and tell that's each other it was an honor to compete against you. And that's what makes our community great. It's an amazing community. Uh, you know, we live in a community where because you do jiu-jitsu and because I do jiu-jitsu, we have something such in common that it 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 overpowers typical stuff we would have in common. You know, we have an understanding of what it's like to be humiliated, what it's like to also grow from humiliation. So I think something people have in common is that jujitsu aspect is it, it, so powerful between people, and it makes our community just so awesome when there's not people like political and the Halix and the shit like that. But. All right. Well, thank you again so much, Dave. We wish you best. Thank you so much for your time. We we asked for 45 minutes. We got now an hour and a half, and it felt like it flew by. I hope it flew by for you as well. Oh, man, it's very easy to talk. All right. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll get off air right now. Thank you, guys. Definitely uh, check us Thanks, out sir. on iTunes, SoundCloud, also YouTube, Vimeo. This will be up soon. Um, so take care and have a good night, Dave. Uh, thanks a lot, pal. All right.